The information in this podcast is meant for the education of clinicians in rehabilitation. This is not meant for personal medical diagnosis and treatment, and individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner. Welcome to the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy Vestibular Special Interest Group's podcast on superior canal dehiscence. My name is Ethan Hood. I'm a member of the Vestibular SIG and will be moderating today's podcast. Joining me today is Dr. Michael Reckenstein, who is a neurotologist and is the vice chairman of the Department of Otolaryngology at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania in, physical ther- in Philadelphia. Excuse me. Dr. Reckenstein is also the director of Implantable Hearing Devices Program, director of residency training and education, and is a pre- professor of otolaryngology head and neck surgery at the Hospital University of Pennsylvania. He's been recognized by America's top doctors, the best doctors in America, and by Philadelphia Magazine's annual top doc issues across multiple years. He received his medical school training at McGill University, completed residencies at Queen Elizabeth Hospital and Toronto Hospital, and completed his fellowship at University of California at San Diego Medical Center. So welcome, Dr. Ruckenstein, and thank you for joining us today to talk about superior canal dehiscence. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. Great. So this diagnosis can be somewhat misunderstood by physical therapists and other members of the medical community. So I think probably defining it would be a good idea. So what exactly is superior canal dehiscence? So the first thing I should emphasize is that although you will see a fair amount published about this entity, because it's a relatively newly described disorder, it is a very rare entity. This is not something a physical therapist is likely to encounter nearly as commonly as he or she encounters BPV or Meniere's disease or vestibular neuritis. Certainly not nearly as common as vestibular migraine or even as uh, common as a, not as common as a uh, stroke involving uh, the posterior fossa. So I want to emphasize that this is a rare entity. Okay. The reason it's interesting is because it has a very specific clinical symptomatology attached to it. And it also has a very specific and fairly effective treatment. So as opposed to, for example, Meniere's disease, for which we do not have a treatment that attacks the underlying cause because we don't know what the underlying cause is, Mm -hmm. we do have a disease-specific treatment for superior semicircular canal dehiscence. So although it's rare, we don't want to miss it because we can really effectively treat it. Now, getting back to your question as to what it is, it's really two entities. The first is an anatomic finding typically on CT scan of the temporal bone. And this finding is that of a bony dehiscence or bony deficiency on the most superior portion of the superior semicircular canal of the inner ear. And this bony deficiency results in the membranous labyrinth being in direct continuity with the dura of the brain. There is no leakage of fluids, 
but there is direct continuity. This, this creates what we are now calling a third window effect. Mm -hmm. And to clarify that, the inner ear is considered to have two windows normally, an oval window onto which the stapes attaches and transmits sound, and a round window, which is at the other terminal end of the cochlea. Those are the typically, those are the normal two windows. A third window is not normal, and this is a third membranous window into the inner ear. So that's the anatomical definition of superior semicircular canal dehiscence. And this can be found approximately on one to 2% of all CT temporal bones, regardless of the reason they're done. So it's okay. felt to have an incidence in the population of one to 2%. Okay. However, only a minority of the patients with this, a small minority with the anatomic finding of superior semicircular canal dehiscence has the second entity, which will call, which is the clinical entity. In other words, are they only a small minority, maybe 10 to 15% of the people who actually have the anatomic abnormality actually have a clinical symptomatology attributable to it. Very interesting. So as far as going into the etiology, is there a typical age of onset for individuals to start experiencing symptoms? And also, is there any type of genetic link or is it caused by trauma that people start having symptoms? Uh, all excellent questions. Uh, it's considered in general to be a congenital anomaly, meaning an abnormality in the development of the inner ear from uh, in, during uh, in utero development. And the baby is born with it. Mm -hmm. However, you're quite right. The onset of symptoms is only typically in middle age. Okay. Uh, and why is it that patients who are carrying this defect only become symptomatic decades later? And the reason seems to be is that the defect has to be activated in some way. There has to be some sort of event that precipitates the onset of these symptoms. And you're quite right that this event is typically traumatic. Okay. Now, it, it, that trauma could represent uh, a, an overt head injury, or it could represent a barrow trauma where a patient has uh, taken a scuba dive, or more commonly been in an airplane where a lot of negative pressure is built up on descent. Or uh, it can even be uh, a, a sound trauma where uh, a loud blasting type sound goes off in the ear, or a trauma, a barrow type trauma generated by internal forces such as coughing or sneezing. So one not uncommon scenario in these patients is a patient has a really bad uh, upper respiratory infection with a bad cough, and they're left with symptoms that are originally attributable to the viral infection itself, but persist and persist and persist, warranting further evaluation. 
And it's found that they have the superior canal dehiscence that likely got activated during uh, the ep episode of infection. Hmm. So when you have one of these patients in the clinic, what are the usual differential diagnoses that you should consider? So not only do only a small population get the disorder, but the, there is a spectrum of severity of presentation. Mm -hmm. So most commonly, patients experience a fullness or pressure in their ear, a fullness, a persistent fullness or pressure sensation in the ear. That is by far and away the most common presenting symptom and would likely not present to a physical therapist, mm -hmm. just with that symptom. Yet the majority of patients who are symptomatic from superior canal dehiscence only have that symptom. They may hear their pulse in that ear occasionally, they may even hear their voice in the ear occasionally, their voice sounding particularly loud in that ear. And even more rare is them hearing their eyes move, which is a particularly bizarre type of symptom where they actually have an auditory sensation elicited by eye movement. So that's very rare. So the most common uh, condition along the spectrum of symptoms is, is what we call oral, A-U-A-R-L, uh, fullness or ear fullness. Mm -hmm. Now, as the severity uh, increases, the vestibular symptoms become <clears throat> uh, also uh, present. And these symptoms are typically transient episodes of severe vertigo lasting for seconds and usually elicited by a loud sound so-called Tulio's phenomenon, mm -hmm. or uh, a rapid pressure change. So uh, they uh, put an air bud in their ear that had a very strong seal, and when they pushed in, they got, they got a spinning sensation. Or they sneezed or coughed and, and had a bad uh, a spinning sensation. Uh, so, or they, uh, uh, you know, they were in a club or a, at a wedding, and the music elicited a, a vertiginous sensation. The vertigo itself is, is very transient. It, it lasts for seconds at a time, but it can be very violent. And I had one patient walk in with a motorcycle helmet on his head. Uh, and uh, I immediately thought, well, this is not somebody, someone in my specialty is gonna help. Uh, when I asked him why he was wearing it, he said, he took it off once he was sitting in the chair. He said, I've had, you know, I've been walking down the street or, or doing something, and I've had two really bad falls, one of which resulted in a brief hospitalization because I, I lost my balance from the severe vertigo that came on out of the blue when this loud sound went off near me, and I fell, and I uh, had, a, had a severe laceration of my scalp. On one on one occasion, so I wear this helmet to protect me, which oh. was not illogical when you thought about yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so uh, they're very transient, but they're very dramatic. Okay. And I think the key when you ask me about differential is the symptom that elicits it. Clearly, the non-positional vertigo can also elicit a very transient uh, episode of vertigo. 
but that is always positional mm -hmm. pressure, whereas this is always sound or pressure related in nature. Okay. So are there any special diagnostic tests to confirm the diagnosis? There are, and, and I want to bring up this at this point because a patient, we often get patients come in, and I would even suspect the physical therapists who treat vestibular disorders will even get more of this, mm -hmm. where a patient comes in uh, with a report on a head CT of superior canal dehiscence, superior semicircular canal dehiscence. And, or they're being worked up for vertigo or dizziness, and they have a CAT scan, and the CAT scan shows this. It's very important to correlate the symptoms with the radiologic findings. Okay. Remember, I said only 10% or so of the patients with this radiologic finding will have the symptoms. You can have a patient with vestibular migraine who also, by coincidence, has superior canal dehiscence on their CT scan, but it's not responsible for their symptomatology. Mm -hmm. You can have a patient with what we're now calling triple PD. Uh, and this is commonly what happens because the patient will have triple PD and has been searching around for a diagnosis and somebody finds this on CAT scan and says, oh, here's your problem, you have superior canal dehiscence. But in fact, uh, they don't have the uh, symptoms attributable to superior canal dehiscence and, uh, um, and they have uh, rather um, uh, symptoms secondary to triple PD. So it's very important to correlate the test results with, um, with the clinical symptomatology. That said, we generally say you need two, two of the three diagnostic tests for superior canal dehiscence to be positive before you would consider the diagnosis, uh, particularly surgery for the diagnosis. So obviously the CAT scan is definitive. It, it will either show or not show the superior canal dehiscence. And uh, originally, the specific scan was hard to get because it required a, a particular orientation of the of the uh, of the views. But that's that is no longer an issue. And and really, uh, the the vast vast majority of high definition CAT scans of the temporal bone are are sufficient to make that uh, uh, diagnosis. Is it a, a special type of, of section that you're looking at within the CT scan to look well, usually for? Usually they'll do uh, axials and coronals, and that mm -hmm. will allow, that will, uh, the, the coronals are usually a fine enough cuts that you can run through them and see the dehiscence. Okay. If they can, re, you know, some people demand that they reformat it in a, in a sort of a parasagittal uh, uh, frame, and, uh, and that gives you the whole canal in one view, in one picture. Uh, we sometimes do it with a little scanner we have in our office if we have any question, uh, but most of the time you don't need the reformatting. Most of the time you could see it on coronal scans. Um, so because of the improvement in our CAT scan technology, we've come to rely much less on the, the audiometric test called, uh, or the vestibular test called vestibular evoked myogenic potentials. Mm -hmm. uh, the um, uh, the uh, so-called thresholds of these potentials were shown to be reduced significantly in these patients, and it's still an interesting finding. But the test is difficult to do. It's difficult on the patient, and it's difficult to do, and it's difficult to do well and accurately 
so uh, even though our center does vent, uh, what we what uh, the test uh, we uh, abbreviate as VEMPs uh, routinely, uh, I generally don't order them if the CAT scan and in particular the audiogram are 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 conclusive. I don't necessarily I don't personally need VEMPs to confirm the diagnosis. The audiogram should show. Okay. Uh, what we call an airbone gap in the low frequency. Okay. Uh, this, this is uh, a gap between the potential hearing as measured by the bone conduction and the actual hearing as, as measured by air conduction with, a, uh, with a, uh, a, a transducer placed directly over the ear canal. Uh, and this airbone gap, which is typically associated with what we call conductive hearing loss, uh, produces a, a, a pseudo-conductive hearing loss on audiogram. It's not really conductive. It's really due to this third window, and you see an airbone gap. It's usually about 10 to 20 decibels, and uh, and that the the combination of an airbone gap on audiogram and a CAT scan abnormality are the tests you need to confirm the diagnosis. Okay, are are there any clinical tests that you can perform with the patient, essentially bedside or within the examination room? Um, you can, uh, we, uh, the most common one is not something again, you would do in, um, in, uh, in the a PT would do, which is a mm -hmm. tuning fork test. Uh, if you put a tuning fork test on a a tuning fork, a 512 Hertz tuning fork on the forehead, this is a test, an old fashioned hearing test, uh, type of device. And you put it on their forehead, they'll lateralize to the ear with the conductive hearing loss. So they'll lateralize to the affected ear. And that's a, a quick and easy test we'll do in the office. Uh, okay. Of course, unless they have it bilaterally, unfortunate enough to have it bilaterally, in which case it'll stay in the center. Um, you can do a uh, fistula test, but what is euphemistically called a fistula test, even though it doesn't really test for fistula, mm -hmm. uh, because the entity probably doesn't really exist. Uh, but uh, you, you, you can apply a positive pressure an alternating positive negative pressure in the ear canal with a pneumatic otoscope mm -hmm. and that uh, in a patient with superior canal dehiscence that could evoke both nystagmus and um and the subjective vertigo um but it's not something we usually we usually do okay um is there any correlation with superior canal dehiscence and other vestibular conditions not really no it's uh, it's a pretty well standalone condition Okay. And then in terms of treatment, what is the preferred treatment? Well, we don't know the answer to that uh, because we'll never be able to do a controlled study. So okay. we go and we sort of infer uh, circumstantially what the, uh, what the best treatment is. Um, the first is nothing. Uh, most patients who just have fullness in the ear uh, are very happy to be told, okay, this is your problem. I can do surgery on you, but I'm not really sure it's gonna help this subtle symptom. And the surgery can be fairly involved and most of them sort of say, thank you very much, doc. Uh, happy to hear what the problem is. As long as I know what it is, I'm, I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. So I personally do not advocate surgical intervention for patients with isolated fullness in the ear. I don't think our surgeries are great at resolving that level of symptom. And, uh, and then, uh, uh, so I don't advocate it. But let's take the patient who will be seen in, in your clinics, which are the, is the vestibular patient suffering from vertigo elicited by 
pressure or sound. Mm-hmm. And those patients are very debilitated, and we do have a really we do have really effective surgeries that will uh, address that and eliminate the you know the the vast majority of those symptoms in the vast majority of patients. Um, but uh, there is significant debate as to what the surgery of choice is. Uh, there are uh, they're basically uh, divided into two groups. Uh, one group are the cappers. So they, what they try to do is reconstruct the barrier between the superior canal and the dura uh, that has been, is congenitally deficient. Uh, and uh, their logic is, why should I do anything destructive to the ear uh, when I can just take, uh, make a little cap and put it over the superior canal and, and keep the superior canal function intact? And I have to, by way of full disclosure, I am in the capper camp. Okay. Uh, that is my surgery of choice for superior canalogists. However, there are also the pluggers. And what the pluggers do is they defunction the superior canal by plugging it. Uh, with a, So they do a surgical approach to expose the canal and the dehiscence. And then they'll take a biologic material, uh, usually some bone dust and fascia, a little blood mixed in, and often a little bone wax to seal. And they will take the, a very, very small amount of this and literally push it into the canal to compress the endolymphatic compartment and defunction it. Now, this type of surgery was popularized for re- resistant forms of benign positional vertigo, where we mm-hmm. plug the posterior semicircular canal. So the same idea was, was used in the uh, in the superior canal dehiscence to defunction it that way. Uh, you are defunctioning the canal, uh, and if you get a good dehis- a good repair, you will eliminate the symptoms because you're taking the canal out of the, out of the uh, mix, so to speak. Um, I personally uh, prefer a conservative approach. Uh, the capping technique can be done uh, in an hour or less uh, it's done through the mastoid. Mm-hmm. We make a, we elevate a little bit of the dura. We identify the superior canal in the mastoid, elevate a little bit of the dura over it, maybe a centimeter uh, in a square area or a little more, and slide something over to cap it. And that, that creates a very tight window, so to speak, for the or tight pocket for the material. And what mm-hmm. you use to cap it is sort of surgeons dependent. I use cartilage. Uh, that was described by Larry Lundy in a, in a, out of Jacksonville. Uh, and I found that extremely effective. Uh, other people use fascia or pericranium or perichondrium alone. Some people even use an artificial uh, silastic uh, imp- uh, implant to place over it. Um, the results all seem to be fairly similar. Uh, I've done quite a few of these and had really very heartwarming results from it. The patients are very grateful. Okay. Uh, the nice thing about it is it's very quick. Uh, we do keep the patient overnight just because they can get a little vertigo after the surgery. They don't all do it, but some of them do. Mm-hmm. Go home the next day uh, and are generally uh, up and moving that day. We don't put much in the way of restrictions on them. And uh, it, it usually resolves their symptoms. It's not destructive. So if it doesn't work, you could always go back and plug the canal. Uh, I, in my practice, uh, I've never had to do that. I'm sure if, I'm sure I w- will one day, 
Mm-hmm. And it could be somebody else's, you know, revising my cases and saying, uh, I plugged it for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I, I do keep track of most of these patients and uh, we haven't uh, had to revise any of them. So it seems to, in my hands, it works. It, that's very effective. The plugging works very well, but it's a bigger surgery. You have to do a, a, cranio- a mini craniotomy, elevate the temporal lobe along with the dura, identify the site of dehiscence, and plug it, and then you know put the craniotomy and repair the craniotomy. Uh, put the uh, put the temporal lobe down and repair the craniotomy. Uh, it works. It works well. The patient will get vertigo from the procedure, uh, and uh, and will be in hospital for a few days because they have had a craniotomy. There are also some rare complications in that of bleeds, intracranial bleeds that can be quite catastrophic. Uh, but it is rare. I don't want to overemphasize that. There are people. It is rare. Um, but it's a bigger surgery and it's defunctioning the canal. Uh, but there are, there are, uh, so I don't ascribe to it, but there are people who are very strong believers in that. So if you do the plugging, if you do the plugging technique, is the patient more likely to have vestibular therapy after the treatment well, because yes, you're dysfunctioning will, the canal? You, they will likely need vestibular therapy because they will have a at least a minor non-compensated vestibular loss and imbalance afterwards. Okay. And the surgeons have to counsel them about it, and they are very careful. Uh, the surgeons at Hopkins, uh, where the entity was discovered, are very firmly in the plugging camp, and I know they're very conscientious about that. Uh, and uh, they will likely need PT, not specifically for superior canal dehiscence, mm-hmm. but really for a, a non-compensated vestibular loss. Makes sense. Makes sense. Are, are there any non-surgical conservative measures to help individuals with this? Not really. There have been people who played with different manipulations of the tympanic membrane, uh, but uh, they haven't really proven to be uh, t- terribly effective. Okay. Uh, there is another surgery that's been described. I should, I should add that to mm-hmm. it. I don't the data is not compelling for it, and I don't recommend it. It's a very minor surgery where you basically re- restore the patient to two windows, but you, you don't restore them by curing their superior canal dehiscence. You block the round window uh, mm. in the middle ear, which is a very easy, pers- which technically is very easy access. So you block that with some fat or some muscle or some combination of things. And so you, revert, you restore them to two windows. Uh, the uh, superior canal and the oval window. I don't think it's a terribly effective surgery and I don't advocate it. Okay. Okay. And then as far as what was the, the prognosis and overall timeline for recovery post-surgery? And is there a difference between whether you take the, the plugging versus the capping approach? So with the plugging, uh, with, the ca- with the capping, um, Sorry, let me, uh, I'm sure you'll be able to edit this out, but I hope you will. Yeah, I'll, I'll pause it. With the... Um, so with the plugging technique, uh, they're generally up and around the next day. If they've had vertigo, uh, they may have uh, some imbalance after the surgery. Mm-hmm. I think we've had them, have, one or two of them had this, have vestibular rehab. Uh, occasionally we'll put them on steroids. Uh, that's anecdotal. There's no proof it works. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, they're up and around uh, the next day. Uh, we ask them not to do any really heavy activity uh, 
for uh, a few days. Again, that's kind of anecdotal. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it better be safe than sorry. So not to work out. Uh, they can walk and certainly do things around the house, but no heavy lifting, no workouts, uh, certainly no activity where they might engage in a head injury. Uh, we, and we asked them for, a, you know, three to five days not to do anything like that. Some people may feel they need a week of that sort of restriction. Um, but they generally have very, uh, a very short post-op period. Uh, the, the, um, the canal will leave them with vertigo and a sense of full, uh, canal plugging will <laughs> leave them with a sense of vertigo. If they've done a, if they've done a small craniotomy, they're on more severe restrictions. Uh, and uh, because of the craniotomy, uh, so they'll be restricted from activity, uh, physical activity for a number of weeks, heavy physical activity for a number of weeks. Um, and uh, as you said, they may well need some PT. If, you, if there is a plugging technique that you can do through the mastoid itself, uh, similar to the capping, except instead of, instead of capping the canal, you, you make two little holes in it and plug it. Uh, if that's the case, then they haven't had the craniotomy. They'll still have the vestibular complaints, but uh, they won't have uh, they won't have the restrictions imposed by craniotomy. Uh, but you know, we can assume they're going to be imbalanced for uh, several weeks and may or may not need PT to help them through that. Okay. So as far as any type of post-surgical contraindications, uh, basically for the capping. There's not a whole lot, but if there's the plugging, you definitely want to watch out for any type of, of weight training, valsalva maneuvers, things like that, because of the craniotomy that occurred. Is that correct? Um, you're just going to be a little more cautious. With okay. Okay. So if vestibular therapy is required, um, when do you usually start post-op? Uh, well, for the capping, if they need it, I'll start right away. Okay. The sooner the better. Um, if it's a plugging, you may want to wait a, a, uh, a week or two, but probably even in those patients, they can, in, they can engage in PT right away. It's very much like our acoustic neuroma patients. They start up on PT right away. Okay. And typically because we're treating them for an uncompensated lesion, we're just going to follow right. the protocol for that essentially for treatment and exercises. Right. And typically they're not going to need vestibular therapy for very long. Is that correct? Hopefully not. Um, hopefully not. Uh, from a purely vestibular perspective, they shouldn't need it for very long. Okay. So you really encourage these patients post-op to be up and moving as much as possible? Like any vestibular mm -hmm. problem, right? The more activity, the better they are. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, this was great. I, I learned a lot in terms of the different uh, surgical procedures you can possibly perform for this. Um, once again, thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Ruckenstein. And it's been an that honor and a privilege. And uh, I've, always, I've always enjoyed my interactions with PTs. We have a very active group at University of Pennsylvania who join us for our balance center meetings and keep us on our toes. Uh, I don't know how I could practice without vestibular PT because almost everybody leaves my clinic with a a referral to them. Mm -hmm. And I was so impressed with them that I encouraged my daughter to go into PT and she just recently graduated. So Oh, congratulations. I couldn't we I couldn't bring her over to the uh, neuro side yet. Uh, she, <laughs> she wanted to do pediatric PT. And um, we do a course uh, that includes a, a vestibular rehab for the pediatric patient every couple of years. 
so that's run out of chalk. So I'm mm. hoping to get her down there to drink a little of that. Uh, of the Kool-Aid? Kool-Aid, yeah. <laughs> that's great. So that will conclude our podcast on superior canal dehiscence. Please join us on our future podcast covering all aspects of vestibular pathology and rehab. So have a great day. Thank you.